Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars, LawPay. The Me Too movement has showed us that women's complaints of sexual harassment have been frequently ignored and left some people, often men, wondering if their workplace behaviors were appropriate. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm talking about confronting confusion in the wake of Me Too of Gerald Pauling. An employment partner with Seifarth Shaw, he does litigation as well as policies and practice work. Welcome to the show, Gerald. Thank you. So, I think what we could say would be tip number one, if you don't want to be accused of sexual harassment, don't sexually harass people. <laughs> I, I think that would be a, a fair statement. Um, but you do, you do hear people talking about it, and I think it's kind of, it's brought some issues to the workplace. Um, in terms of women getting opportunities and particularly younger women. So would you say in terms of what people say, well, I'm afraid I'm going to get accused of sexual harassment, is that kind of much ado about nothing? Well, I don't think I would say it's much ado about nothing because those misunderstandings, whether they're genuine or not, can result in poor behavior uh, and they can result in exposure to legal liability for employers. Uh, so I don't think I would say it's much ado about nothing. I do, and I agree with you that there is a discussion uh, in the workplace about, I don't know how to act uh, anymore in the wake of Me Too. And I think the issue is whether those comments are, are genuine comments, whether they're accurate based on what the individuals making them uh, really know, uh, as opposed to what the narrative becomes. What is your sense as an employment attorney? Are you getting a sense of whether when the question comes up, it's made in good faith? Well, in addition to litigating, I also um, spend a fair amount of time uh, delivering training to supervisors and managers and rank-and-file employees. Mm -hmm. And I almost never encounter situations where uh, trainees and participants in training are unable to identify uh, the lines between appropriate and inappropriate behavior. I mean, literally almost never. I mean, uh, when you do exercises with conduct cards or conduct lines, those groups and individuals usually are pretty able to identify the lines between appropriate behavior and inappropriate behavior or risky behavior. Can you just explain for our listeners if they don't do an employment law, what are conduct cards and conduct lines? Sure. So um, conduct cards are a tool that you use as a trainer. Um, mm -hmm. They involve a scenario that you might write down on a card and uh, pass that out among the group that's being trained. And then you have a dialogue about what is described in the card. Uh, for example, it's an interaction between a male colleague and a female colleague at work. Mm -hmm. um, and you look at the scenario and then you have a discussion about whether that conduct is appropriate, inappropriate, or, or risky. Mm -hmm. Conduct line is a similar, uh, but it, it just uses a tool asking people to place conduct on a line between appropriate, risky, and inappropriate. Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm curious, does it come up much? I mean, it, with the conduct cards... Are there subtle things as well? Like one of the things it seems like I have heard some people say is, well, what, I can't tell someone they look nice or things like that. Does that come up? But I'm wondering what kind of advice. I mean, maybe you should think if you wouldn't say this to someone of the same gender, you shouldn't say it 
to someone of the opposite gender? How do you get people to think about that? Um, think about meaningful ways to do better as opposed to complaining about it, I guess. Sure. And that's the discussion you have during the training, whether it's individual or group, because usually what occurs is the group will get to a point where they talk about the fact that, well, perhaps the first time you compliment someone on their appearance or their attire, uh, they receive it as it is intended, as a compliment. Mm -hmm. um, but after the third or fourth time, that becomes over-complimenting, mm -hmm. uh, and it becomes something that's uncomfortable. Uh, there are also non-verbal cues that are involved in paying a compliment. Uh, and so if you are paying a compliment to someone and surveying them with your eyes, there is a different way that that is received than if you are paying them a compliment and not engaging in non-verbal cues that indicate that the compliment is more than a compliment. Do you think, too, I mean, recognizing now that maybe some people at work are comfortable getting compliments about appearances or something they're wearing, just don't do that at work. I don't think anyone would mind if you didn't pay them compliments about how they looked. And it seems like if you want to be really professional and ensure that you're not offending people, just don't do it. Sure. I think there's there's certainly that line of thought, but there's another line of thought that, you know, paying someone a compliment is not unprofessional. It can be friendly, uh, and being friendly is being professional. And so it really is about the context in which that conduct occurs. But that's not to say that people don't get it when a compliment is more yes. than a compliment. Um, yeah. Because we don't just have a transcript of what was said between Jane and Joe. Mm -hmm. We have the nonverbal interactions. Jane and Joe might have a history of whether it involves paying her compliments all the time or, you know, or, or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and that is what the discussions in training become about. You know, when does something that might be appropriate become risky or flat out inappropriate. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that comes up a lot in this discussion about workplace sexual harassment is intent and perception. And some people can get very defensive about their intent. And it seems to me like if you really want to create a better workplace, you need to get past what your intent was and focus on perception. That's absolutely true because in the lawsuit, your intent doesn't matter. In the lawsuit, your your conduct matters and how it was received and perceived is what matters, not what you intended. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's part of uh, when you're dealing with these issues in training, you have to let people know it's not just about your intent. In fact, it's often not at all about your intent. It's about what you said, what you did when you said what you said, how many times you said what you said, and other issues and contextual factors that come into play. So I think that what you're telling me, it seems to me like it should be pretty apparent to anyone who practices law, but you still hear this stuff with attorneys sometimes who are not oftentimes non-employment lawyers. And I, I'm kind of scratching my head. Sure. My, you know, it's not that you don't hear it. For me, it's I don't buy it. Uh -huh. um, and I think the further we go in time, the less people buy it that you don't know how to determine what is inappropriate behavior versus appropriate behavior. Uh, and if that is what you are saying, and, and you really mean that, then there are other questions that need to be asked about your ability to operate in today's environment. But uh, again, the Me Too movement hasn't changed the law. It has changed some, some things, but, it, but risky behavior 
uh, before Me Too is the same risky behavior after Me Too. And there isn't much that, you know, no legal standards have changed and people's ability to understand whether their conduct is inappropriate or appropriate. I don't buy that that much has changed between before and after. So that aspect of I don't buy it, how do you get that across to a client and get them to step off them and just say, you know, listen, this is not working. It just goes in front of the jury. You're going to look like an idiot. You need to move on from that. How do you get them to hear that? Because I think being defensive about behavior that's bad is kind of human nature for a lot of people. Well, I, I must tell you, I don't often find myself having to argue this point with clients mm-hmm. because I'm there to just point out how something may play out. And we can have a discussion about, well, this individual uh, is saying that he doesn't understand what's risky and not risky behavior. He didn't understand that what he did crossed the line. Uh, And we can have a conversation about whether a trier of fact or whether other reasonable people are going to buy that. Mm -hmm. And then the client gets to make the decision about whether they want to go with the he didn't understand narrative or to act notwithstanding a person's indication that they didn't understand. Uh, And I do think we have to factor in that there may be, however small, individuals who who really didn't understand that something they said would be uh, offensive to the person receiving it. I think that's a really small percentage of the people we're talking about. And as I indicated earlier, I think I say, I believe that by and large, most people are more than able to draw the lines between appropriate and inappropriate or risky behavior. And if that person really didn't understand what he or she was saying and someone points it out to them and they offer a meaningful apology, does that usually solve the problem? Uh, I would say usually. Uh Um, I mean, you know, sometimes it doesn't for any number of reasons, but often it does. And there are other things you can do to, you know, and along with an apology, you know, deliver some training, um, do some coaching. Right. Uh, and it changed the behavior. Change the behavior. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. Right. I'm curious, too, in your work, are you seeing many individuals who might say to you, yeah, you know, 10 years ago, I was doing all this stuff and I was a big jerk. And then I started hearing about these sexual harassment cases and seeing how they affected people. And I've changed. I realized I was a jerk and I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not good for other people. It's not good for me. How often do I see that? I have to say not not often. Okay. I certainly could envision that being the case that people, mm-hmm. uh, as time goes on, understanding that, you know, how they used to act uh, isn't appropriate and they modify their own behavior. But, you know, respect is kind of a universal thing and professionalism is a universal uh, thing. And I think there are people who knew how to act professionally when they came into the workplace and they you know, continue to act professionally, you know, throughout. Uh, Mm -hmm. And there are others who came into the workplace not knowing how to act professionally, and that behavior can often be addressed, but sometimes it can't be corrected. And they leave the workplace not knowing how to act professionally. (laughs) Okay. One way or another. All right. Um, Let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, I wanted to talk to you about 
holiday work parties. Okay. Post me too. We'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person, no equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com podcast to sign up and get your first three months free. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and on today's episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Gerald Pauling, an employment partner at Seifarth Shaw, and we're talking about workplace behaviors in the post-Me Too movement world. So this podcast is going to run at the end of November, which is the start of attorney's holiday party seasons for many. Are there some things to think about that maybe were appropriate at a holiday party five to 10 years ago that would be risky now? Well, as we say, tis the season and it is the time of year where we at Seifarth, you know, proactively reach out to our clients to provide some uh, proactive suggestions about holiday parties and other activities that occur during the holiday season Mm -hmm. uh, that can sometimes create exposure or risk Uh, to the client and their environment or their organization. You know, it's interesting. The only difference I see in terms of the likelihood of exposure post-Me Too is the greater awareness there is to issues of sexual abuse and sexual harassment, you know, the, the greater awareness that folks have about those issues, because I think that what that has resulted in is people being more willing to speak up and speak out Um, And so I think there might be a greater likelihood that behavior may be reported or objected to and may come to the company's attention. Um, I don't... I'm going to pause you for a moment. Sure. You think that there's a greater likelihood inappropriate behavior at a holiday party would be reported than inappropriate behavior just in the day-to-day work life? Uh, No, I don't... Well, no, I don't think that. Mm -hmm. I think that in general, inappropriate behavior is more likely to be reported today than it was before Mm -hmm. Me Too because of, and I think that was the point of the movement to to have people understand how many people are affected by this, the types of people that are affected by it, and an encouragement of others to speak out if this is happening to you. So Mm -hmm. in general, I think that that has resulted in greater willingness of people to report incidents of harassment when they occur. So I think in general and in the holiday party context, you are more likely to hear about it post Me Too Mm -hmm. than I believe you were likely to hear about it before Me Too. And that will be part of the advice that we are sharing with clients as we reach out to them this holiday season and future holiday seasons. Well, what are some things you're going to tell them that maybe have changed? Um, I don't know that anything has changed Uh because parties are often risky because they involve party behavior, uh, people letting loose. Uh, sometimes alcoholic beverages are, are involved and they are away from the office where office behavior might not rule. And so there is that type of exposure. And those are the kinds of reminders that you're uh, trying to get you know, to clients to um, encourage them to have some discussion with their employees about the fact that this is still a work event that there is a standard of professionalism mm-hmm. and you need to do that in, in ways that are appropriate for the organization so that you don't um, ruin morale by making what should be a 
you know, celebration uh, and a time for colleagues to uh, enjoy the company of one another. You don't make that, you, know, mm-hmm. you don't put too much of a damper on that. Okay. So one of the things that I have noticed is I feel, I don't know if it's this way in other professions, but in the legal profession, I feel like if you are at a bar event or maybe even a work event and you come across someone who's a friend, even like friend with lowercase f, people tend to hug each other as a greeting. And I think that varies by region as well. But I do think that now people who were used to giving hugs as greetings to friends and work situations have stopped doing it or they'll ask first. What what do you think about that? I think that's true. Uh, I think that because people understand that physical touching is a very quick way to offend another person Mm -hmm. or create uh, risk for yourself, people are more careful about that. And that's probably a good thing because you shouldn't be touching anyone that you don't know is comfortable with being touched. Now, that's not to say that, uh, as you pointed out, uh, hugging is appropriate in some environments, and I'm not saying that it isn't. Uh, I'm just saying that it's an inherently risky behavior, and so before engaging in it, people need to um, really know, really be comfortable that it's not going to be misinterpreted or unwanted. And do you think, too, maybe a way to approach it is to think, well, I don't want to risk not reading the cues or offending someone. So if I see a friend, lowercase f friend, um, at a work event, I'm going to put my hand out as opposed to that awkward going in for that hug, I think. It's just, it's changed, I think. Absolutely. I mean, that's that's certainly one strategy. And, and then, you know, folks also have to think about their position in the organization because if it's a work function, there are other people that are going to see that hug. And so as a, as a manager, you really sort of need to think about um, hugging as an activity. Are you going to hug everybody? Are you going to hug nobody? Are you going to hug some mm-hmm. people? And what are the people that you don't hug going to think about that? Um, so there's, there's a lot to it. And I think that it's always been the case that there's a lot to it. But mm-hmm. it, there's a focus on it because of the events that we're seeing in the media and all that. But, um, you know, I think I have always counseled people to be especially careful about physical touching unless it was a, a handshake. Do you think also the higher one goes in one's organization, the more he or she needs to be conscious of whether their behaviors are appropriate in light of things like that? Absolutely. I believe that emotional intelligence is becoming a prerequisite or a job requirement, or certainly at least uh, something that distinguishes good leaders from from bad leaders. Mm -hmm. And I think that the more people can develop uh, soft skills and emotional intelligence, I think the better they will be as leaders. And I think it becomes more important. Those skills become more important as people ascend in organizations because they are modeling behavior for others in the organization. Mm -hmm. The other thing that comes with the holidays oftentimes are client gifts. And that doesn't involve touching for the most part. But I'm wondering if maybe... Some businesses are thinking differently about gifts that they might give to clients or colleagues for the holidays in terms of how it's going to be perceived. I think for reasons entirely unrelated to Me Too, gifts are not as frequently given to clients uh, as people might imagine. Uh-huh. Um, they're sometimes, very often, most clients I work with, their own policies 
require that they not accept gifts from vendors or service providers. And oh, so, interesting. So the big gift baskets are yeah, kind of dying out, huh? They're dying out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Gerald, that's everything we have time for today. I want to thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And thank you to the ABA for creating a venue and a space for these conversations to occur. Yes. And listeners, thank you for joining us. If you like what you heard today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered.